Are you ready to learn how to talk to crazy people? My name is Doug Vigliotti, and welcome to It's Not What It Seems. What's up, everyone? As always, thank you for tuning in today. Today's episode, you're going to learn how to get through to anyone, even those crazy, irrational, and impossible people in your life. I had a compassionate conversation with Dr. Mark Golston. Mark is a psychiatrist, consultant, business coach, and author of international bestsellers. Just listen, discover the secret to getting through to absolutely anyone and talking to crazy how to deal with the irrational and impossible people in your life, as well as many other books. He's a former UCLA professor of psychiatry and FBI hostage negotiation trainer and currently works as an executive coach and an advisor to CEOs and founders of Fortune 100 companies. He's been named as one of America's top psychiatrists four times by the Consumer Research Council of America and frequently featured in the Wall Street Journal and Fortune and featured on Oprah, CNN, NPR, Fox News, and BBC TV. He's also contributed to the Hartford Business Review, Business Insider, Fast Company, Huffington Post, and Psychology Today. He's the CEO and co-founder of the Golston Group. Some of his current and past clients include IBM, GE, Disney, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, FedEx, Morgan Stanley, the American Bar Association, and the FBI. Mark serves on the Board of Advisors for Health Corps and Brain Rush and is the co-founder of the global community Heartfelt Leadership. You can connect with him on Twitter at Mark Golston or visit him at his website, markgolston.com. Mark is such a generous and kind guy. I think you're going to get that right away with the first story he shares on what triggered him on his path of being a psychiatrist and ultimately a suicide specialist. He's just full of strategies and tips for how to communicate better with people. And in our conversation, you'll learn why it's important to handle yourself first before being able to communicate with anybody else. How to do the rope-a-dope like Muhammad Ali in an argument with your significant other. How to deal with the Donald Trumps in your life. We even coin a brand new communication strategy called the hot potato technique. And you'll learn about the givers, takers, and receivers. But this is just a few things that you're going to learn. There's so much more that you'll be able to take away from this conversation. Let's jump right into it. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Mark Goldstein. Dr. Mark Goldstein, welcome to the show. So glad to be joining you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's absolutely great to have you on the podcast. I think you're going to be able to shed light on an incredibly important topic for everyone, how to communicate better. I feel like this is a skill we all need to improve at always. And full disclosure, full honesty, listening has always been an Achilles heel of mine, but I really feel like some of the strategies that I read about in, in your book, Just Listen, when I first read it, really helped me improve my listening. So I'm even more excited to have you on this podcast for that reason. Funny story, I just read your, I just finished reading your book, Talking to Crazy. And ironically, I read both of those books in the same vacation spot near Gansett, Rhode Island, two years apart. So I don't know if it's something about the beach and communication, but something is tickling. I don't know what it is. Anyway, both of them have tons of strategies and techniques. Both are great books. I highly recommend them. But before we dive into anything like that or how to talk to crazy people or anything of that nature, I want to ask you about the early Mark Golston. 
Was there any one instance or combination of instances that happened early in your life to help forge your career or, or current path? There was one singular instance, which is that I think my greatest personal accomplishments, and I've, I've accomplished a lot. I mean, if people Google me, they'll say, yeah, he's done, he's done a fair amount. But my greatest personal accomplishment is I dropped out of medical school twice and finished. So I don't know too many people that dropped out of medical school twice and finished. And I didn't drop out to see the world. I think I had untreated depression. And so what happened is I was reading books and I could comprehend, but I couldn't recall what I had read. So my books were all yellow from highlights. So, so I highlighted the whole book, hoping that that would magically help me hold on to things, but I couldn't. So I was passing everything. I took a leave of absence, worked in blue collar jobs in Boston. I sometimes missed them because they were just so simple. I would be finished with work and responsibilities at five or six at night. And I love some of the jobs I have, and I miss those too because they were just simple and loved them. So I worked in a blue collar job the first leave of absence, came back, and in about three months, it came back again. So my mind left, and I came from a background. I grew up outside of Boston with depression age parents, and, and it's not that unusual, but you're basically your worth is what you do in the world. And if you don't do much, you're not worth much. So that's not an unusual mindset for a lot of people, and they know what that's like. So the second time, I think I had reached this low point where I really wasn't capable of doing much. And I asked for another leave of absence, and I met with the head of the medical school who's about fundraising, and I don't even remember the meeting. But then I got a call from the, from the dean of students. So the dean of students cares about students. The dean of the medical school cares about fundraising. And they lose money every time someone takes a leave of absence. So here they were going to lose money for the second time from matching governmental matching funds. So I get a call from Dean William McNary, the dean of students. And he's an Irish Catholic from Boston. And I'm from Boston. So he calls me. And we used to call him Mac. And he said, Mac, Mac, this is Mac. Mac, you better get in here. We got, a, we got a letter here from the, uh, the dean. I think you got to read it, Mac. So I go in there, and it was a pisser. No, no, I go in there. <laughs> Shades of goodwill hunting. What can I tell you? But, uh, yeah. uh, it's okay. but I go in there, and I'm at a low point. And he says, you better read this letter. So I read the letter. It's from the dean of the school. And it says, I met with Mr. Goulston, suggested an alternate career, perhaps the cello, and I'm advising the promotions committee that he'd be asked to withdraw. So I was passing, and they couldn't kick me out. And so I looked at Mac, and I said, what does this mean? He said, Mac, you've been kicked out. And it was my good fortune that I didn't get sarcastic and cynical and say, well, they can't do that. I'm passing everything. I was too far gone. Plus, it was my good fortune that I didn't go overly pathetic and go, oh, what am I going to do? In fact, when he said it, I felt like I'd been shot in the gut. And I know what that feels like because I had a perforated colon about 10 years ago and I almost died. And so he said, and I went, whoa. And then I felt something wet on my cheeks and I thought I was bleeding. So I, I kept touching my cheeks. So I kind of see this as a resurrection. I'm not that spiritual, but I'm looking and I thought I was bleeding and I looked at my hands and there were tears. And so imagine this. You know, the, what you're used to is conditional acceptance. You know, you're, you, you're only worth what you do. And so this is what I hear from Mac. So I don't know if you can understand what it's like to 
live in a world in which your worth is, you're, you're conditionally accepted in the world because you get to be a doer. And here I was, here I was, I couldn't do that. So if you get into the mindset, so he says this to me, he says, Mac, you didn't screw up, but you are screwed up. But if you get unscrewed up, I think this school would one day be glad they gave you a second chance. And so I start to cry because he's being kind. I, I don't know what this is, what, what he's doing. And then he says to me, and Mark, even if you don't get unscrewed up, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do another thing the rest of your life, I'd be proud to know you because you have goodness in you. And we don't grade that in medical school. We should, but we don't. And you don't know how much the world needs your goodness. And you won't know it till you're 35, but you have to make it till you're 35. And so I'm just crying. I can't look at the guy. And then he says, then he says, look at me. He points his finger at me and he says, you deserve to be on this planet and you're going to let me help you. So he arranged an appeal, but really what happened is he saw a future for me that I didn't. He saw that I had worth not having to do anything, that there was something in me that I didn't see, uh, some goodness. Plus, he went to bat for me. He was just an anatomy instructor against the entire promotions committee. You know, everybody was more powerful. So that combination clicked a switch in me. And so I'd been paying it forward, and that's why I became a suicide specialist for the first 25 years as a, a psychiatrist. But there were three things that really taught me about listening, and three much shorter incidents. The first one taught me about listening into people's minds. The second was about listening into people's eyes. And the third was about listening into people's souls. So the first one, I remember I was on rounds as a medical student at the Boston Veterans Hospital outside of Boston, and I was kind of intimidated by everybody there. There was the attending doctor, the residents, the intern, and I was, you know, this, this medical student having problems. And so this was, you know, during a time when I, when I was in medical school. And we passed a veteran's room, and we're outside looking at the chart. And one doctor says, well, I think he needs more chemo. And another doctor says, well, I think he needs surgery. And uh, someone says, well, I think we got to run some more tests. And, you know, and I'm, I'm not really following all this because, you know, I'm, you know, my mind isn't really all that there. And a nurse comes over and says about the guy in the room, he sa she said, didn't you hear Mr. Jones jump from the roof last night? And he's in the morgue. And it just went silent, and I swear, I heard a voice that said, maybe he needed something else. And I think that planted the seed for being a, a psychiatrist, at least one that listens. And then the next thing that happened is I was, I had finished my, uh, uh, I, I was doing my psych psychiatric training at UCLA, so I did you know, go back to medical school and made it through and started doing a psychiatric residency at UCLA. And this is where I listened into someone's eyes. And I was paged by these oncologists, and this was when AIDS was just being discovered. And I think one of the early centers that discovered it was UCLA. And so the oncologist said, yeah, we have a guy who's pulling out his IVs, he's pulling out his respirator tube, he's just, he's agitated all over the bed. So we put him in soft restraints, we restrained his arms and legs, 
and we need you to okay that and okay an order for uh, this tranquilizer to calm him down. So uh, I go into the room, and we'll just call him Mr. Smith, and as soon as I go in the room, his eyes are the size of saucers, and he can't talk because he has a respirator tube in his, in his neck. And he's groaning at me, and, and he's screaming at me with his eyes. He can't talk. And I say, what is it? What is it? And he's just, and, and he's all tied down. And so I put a little uh, pen in his hand, and I said, write it out. And he just scribbles on a piece of paper. I couldn't read it. So I figured, well, maybe he's just psychotic. That's what the oncologist said. He's just psychotic. And I said, you know, uh, Mr. Smith, we... We had to tie you down because you were pulling out your IVs, you were pulling out the respirator in your neck, you were writhing all over the bed. And so we had to put down your arms and legs and we gave you a tranquilizer. When you calm down, we'll take everything off. And then I left. And then two days later, I got paged by the oncology uh, resident and said, uh, Mr. Smith is up, he's off the respirator, and he asked us to page you. So I go up there. So you connected with him. I mean, you made a connection with him, even without having to say anything. Oh, yeah. So I looked, you know, I, I looked into his eyes, you know, and he was screaming at me. And so yeah. I, I go into the room, and he's calm, and he's, he's uh, seated up, and he looks at me, and I swear, with his eyes, he grabbed under my eyes with his eyes, and he said, pull up a chair. And he wouldn't let go of my eyes. And he said, what I was trying to tell you is that a piece of the respirator had broken off and was stuck in my throat. Wow. And he's holding onto my eyes. And my eyes got a little watery. Uh, and he said, and you do know, I will kill myself before I go back to something like that. Do you understand me? And he wouldn't let go of my eyes. And I, and I said, I understand. I'm, I'm so sorry. And so that taught me how to look into people's eyes. And then the third incident, which is more chilling. You ready? That? Is that yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Keep going. <laughs> so I had somewhat of a suicidal practice because one of my early mentors was a fellow at UCLA named Dr. Ed Schneidman. And if you look him up, he is kind of the, the father of the study of suicide. He co-founded the Suicide Prevention Centers in Washington and Los Angeles. He founded something called the American Association of Suicidology. And he was a pioneer, and he was one of, another one of my mentors. And he basically started my practice because he would see still suicidal people who weren't acutely suicidal, but they needed to be discharged. And uh, residents didn't want to see them outside the hospital because they thought, well, they're going to kill themselves. Now, they weren't acutely suicidal, so he would go, and Ed would meet with them. And Ed would say the same thing. He would call me. It was always the same call. He'd, and he'd go like this, Mark, this is Ed. I'm with this lovely young woman. I'm with this handsome young man. They're in a lot of pain, Mark. You could help them, see them. And so they'd be discharged to see me because they couldn't be discharged unless someone on the outside saw them. So that was a lot of my practice at the beginning. And there was one woman named Nancy who was probably the most suicidal of anyone I'd seen. And she'd made three suicide attempts in the previous two or three years, had been in the hospital three months, three to five months every year for four or five years before I was seeing her. And she wasn't catatonic, but she rarely spoke. Uh, I was probably seeing her, I think, two or three times a week. And she rarely made eye contact. So if I'm looking at her, she's like looking 30 degrees to the left or right. And so one weekend I was moonlighting at a state psychiatric hospital, you know, to pick up some extra bucks. 
Yeah. So when you moonlight, you know, you're there admitting patients, uh, going around all the different inpatient, inpatient wards and writing orders. And sometimes you don't sleep for 36 hours. So I was sleep deprived. And on Monday, I come in to my office and I see Nancy. And she's not looking at me. And as I'm seated there with her, all the color in the room turns to black and white. And I go, whoa. And then the black and white becomes very cold and chilling. So I thought I was having a stroke or a seizure. This was you. Yeah, as I'm looking out, the room is black and white. There's no color, and, I, and it's cold and chilling. Okay. And I thought, I'm having a stroke or a seizure. She's not looking at me. So I do a neurologic exam on myself. You know, I tap my knees. I look at my fingers. And, and I say to myself, well, I'm all here. I'm not having a stroke or seizure. And then I had this crazy idea that I was looking out at the world through her eyes, feeling what she feels. Wow. And so then I, I leaned into it. That's the epitome of being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Huh? Oh, yeah, that's, that's listening into their soul. And so because I was sleep deprived, I blurted out something that normally I wouldn't say. And I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad. And I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. I will miss you. And maybe I'll understand why you had to to get out of all the pain. And I thought to myself, did I think that or did I say that? And then I said, I think I said it. I just gave her permission. And so that was the first time she really made eye contact. And just like with Mr. Smith, when she made eye contact, <laughs> she just looked, she just held on to my eyes, just like Mr. Smith had. And I looked at her and I said, what are you looking at? Because I thought I'd just blown it. Yeah. And she's holding my eyes and she's saying, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of the pain, maybe I won't need to. And then she smiled. Wow. That's, uh, that's amazing. I can't say enough about, there's so many takeaways from those stories. And one of them, I think, major is how much is, goes into effectively communicating with somebody. And it's not just being there, right? It's not just being in the same room or being in the same conversation. It's about really trying to understand what that person is going through. And when you can effectively communicate that to them, even if they're not speaking to you at all, they feel like they're being heard, right? So I, I think it's amazing that you recognize that one at such an early age and then had the courage and the ability to, 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 to follow that through and, and, and create the career that, that you've had for yourself. So one of, one of the questions that I, I do have, and, and since this is a podcast that we like to inspire open-mindedness, mm -hmm. I was hoping you'd be able to shed a little light on the importance of a quote from your book, Just Listen, and it's, it, go, it's, it goes, if you want to open the lines of communication, you have to open your mind first. So my question is, why is this such an important first step to be able to handle yourself first and address what's going on inside you first before you're able to effectively communicate with other people? Well, because too often we all listen to other people with filters, and we're seeking to confirm our biases. And so we don't really listen to where they're coming from. One of my favorite quotes of all time, 
and it's in Justless, and it comes from a British psychoanalyst named Wilfred Bion, and he said the purest form of listening is to listen without memory or desire. And what he meant is when we listen with memory to another person, we are listening with an old personal agenda that we're trying to plug them into, or we're listening with a new present or future personal agenda that we're trying to plug them into, but we're not listening or getting where they're coming from. And one of the things that made me effective, I believe, as a suicide specialist, is none of the people I saw had made multiple attempts and had multiple yeah. treatments. And one of the things I would say to them towards the end, and I said this to Nancy, is I said, if it's okay with you, I'm not going to give you any advice or solutions or treatments that you're not asking for. Would that be okay? And she looked at me like, well, yeah. I mean, kind of like, because, yeah. because a lot of times when we give people treatment, superficially, it's to help them. But a lot of time, it's because they're making us feel out of control and scared. And so we, we say, oh, let's try this, because we're feeling anxious. Yeah. So instead, what I said to her, because I got her attention, I said, what I'm going to do instead, so she had looked deeply in my eyes, and then I looked deeply in her eyes, and I said, what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to find you wherever you are, and I'm going to keep you company there as long as it takes, because you've been there at three in the morning too many times, really pissed off that you were still alive at seven in the morning. Would that be okay? And when I've, wow. when I've done this with suicidal people, I will tell you, they just start to cry. Yeah. And they feel less alone. And I've done this so many times, when they start to cry, I'm not making them cry. I'm helping them feel less alone. And when they feel less alone, they cry with relief. And I can feel the hope go into their mind. Yeah, that's very interesting. So we, we've seen a lot of recently in the past year and i mean this has been a common trend you see a lot of we've seen a lot of suicide in celebrity suicide right we've seen anthony bourdain kate spade robin williams and, and we, we we've seen this with a number of celebrities over time how do these people get to this point why why does this happen with people that clearly have people that want to talk to them and support systems around them how do they get to this point how does that happen uh, it's interesting you mentioned Anthony Bourdain and Robin Williams, because uh, after Robin Williams died, I, I wrote a Psychology Today blog on Robin Williams, and I said he didn't die from depression. And then the day after Anthony Bourdain, I wrote a, a Medium article called Why People Kill Themselves, It's Not Depression, and in four days, it had 520,000 views and 80,000 reads. Wow. As, and so what I talk about is that there's hundreds of millions of people that are depressed who don't kill themselves. Uh, it contributes, but what I said that causes people to kill themselves is despair. And if you break the word despair into D-E-S-P-A-I-R, it means feeling unpaired. So you feel unpaired with hope, hopeless unpaired with worth, worthless, meaningless, purposeless, useless, powerless. And at the end, you feel it's pointless. And so what happens is, if you're like a slot machine, you've lined up and all the reasons to live are taken away from you. So you pair with death to take the pain away. And what happens is, and I'm a neuroscientist, so what's happening 
fact, someone I'm mentoring is a, a fellow who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge named Kevin Hines, and he speaks around the world on suicide. And he was just the, the uh, uh, featured in a movie called Suicide, The Ripple Effect. And he talks about his suicide attempt. And he goes around the world and he has a saying called, be here tomorrow. And I mentor him. And actually, he interviewed me uh, a couple months ago. And then he said, well, you asked me some questions. And I said, okay, as soon as you left the railing of the, uh, and you were going over the Golden Gate Bridge, in that instant, what happened? And um, it was a heck of a question. And he said, as soon as I left, I suddenly, it's like I woke up from a coma and suddenly I realized I wanted to live. I didn't want to die. And so to, to share his story, as he said, what happened is I, I guess he was quick thinking. And he said, if I went in head first, I knew I'd die for sure. So I did like a cannonball and I knew I would break my legs, but you know, I, I might be alive. And, and so he went into the water and he said, I must've gone down about 70 feet and my legs were broken and I just swam as hard as I could to the surface. And this is my explanation for what happens to people who pair with death. As a neuroscientist, what happens is when our stress goes up, our cortisol goes up. And when our cortisol goes high, what happens is we have a part of our brain called the middle emotional brain, and we have something in there called the amygdala. And the amygdala actually is something when our cortisol goes up and our blood flow goes away from our cortex, it hijacks us away from thinking. Yeah. So we get hijacked into emotion. And so what I told him is that when he paired with death, oxytocin, see, when people cry, when they feel, under, feel felt by me and they cry, it's because they get a surge of oxytocin. And oxytocin is the antidote to high cortisol. And when you have a burst of oxytocin, suddenly blood goes into your upper cortex. And when blood goes into your upper cortex, you can start thinking. But that's why people need to feel felt. And something, if people are listening in, I will tell you one of the reasons why women used to live longer than men is that when men are under stress and they have high cortisol, they, they withdraw from the world because they're paranoid and vulnerable, and then they figure out how to come back and master the problem and take the hill. But their cortisol stays high, and over time, by the way, cortisol kills nerve cells. So uh, high cortisol can be damaging to your brain. And, and what happens, though, is that how they, that's how they deal with stress, whereas women know that if they can just feel felt, they'll get a surge of oxytocin. They get a surge of oxytocin, the cortisol goes down, their amygdala goes back in their holster, and they can come up with their own solutions. But what happens is when they're jamming a guy, and the, and the guy thinks their, their feminine energy is, is too irrational, the guy squelches it. Come on, calm down, calm down. And the yeah. point is, the female energy can't get that surge of oxytocin, and their cortisol goes higher. And that's why a lot of women are saying, I don't want advice. And the reason men give advice and solutions is because the men feel <laughs> anxious and overwhelmed and they try to get control. I think I'm a contributor to that. <laughs> I, I would have bet that, but we can fix that. In fact, in fact I'm going to give you a tip. This is a tip, and I think the interview is going okay, but this is going to be the icing on the cake. So there's something that I call mediated catharsis. And what mediated catharsis means 
is when you give the, if you're in an argument, when you give the other person and tell them the negative, hostile, angry words that they really want to say to you, but they'd be afraid to say that to you because you'll get all defensive and it'll escalate. It's, it's like doing a rope-a-dope, like Muhammad Ali did with uh, George Foreman and Zaire. You get them to punch themselves out, and you don't get defensive because you're directing them. So, uh, so we'll call this masculine versus feminine energy, and, and, and one is not superior to the other, by the way. And sometimes the masculine energy comes from these high alpha women who are just, you know, they have more alpha than male. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's not necessarily gender specific. But most frequently, though, men come from the, the solution, problem solving, and women, when they're uh, in an argument, just want to be heard. So here's created catharsis. So you're there with uh, the woman in your life. And uh, do you have a woman in your life? I do. What's her name? Her name is Melissa. So this is what you can do with Melissa. So if you get into an argument, you say to Melissa, and see, when you, when you say this with the purpose of improving it, improving empathy, you can look the other person in the eye because you're not trying to control them. And so you, you look her in the eye and you say, Melissa, this is the tone you use, Melissa, I want to try something that I think will make this better. And if it doesn't, we'll just go back to the argument. Just play along with me. And she's going to go, huh? Yeah, just play along with me. And you're looking in her eye and you say, Melissa, say this to me. Doug, when we get into an argument and you start giving me advice and telling me to calm down, you actually make it much worse. In fact, your freaking advice is assaultive. And just because you don't know how to deal with me, don't try to talk down to me like I'm some silly little girl with all these emotional problems when you don't really know how to handle yourself. And don't make it my problem just because you don't know how to connect with me when I'm a tad upset. So, Melissa, could you say that to me? And what happens is when you give them a vocabulary to express things that are much more hostile than they normally say, you're not on the defensive, you're mediated the catharsis. And, and I'm telling you, it is magic. You're empowering them, right? You're empowering them. And what will happen is because you're not defensive and you're in charge of a, of a facilitated conversation where she's going to get stuff off her chest. When she says that, instead of getting defensive, if you look at her in the eye, she'll vent it. But you won't get defensive, and she will start to giggle. So is there? So she's gonna she's gonna hear this interview, obviously. So will this still work, even though she knows it's coming? Oh, absolutely. In fact, in fact, <laughs> you listen to this, you'll love you you love this anecdote because a woman comes up to me that I know, and she said, "Can I ask you some advice about my husband and me?" I said, "What?" She said, my husband's like an engineer, and he accuses me of blithering, and I do blither. And when we go out with people, I blither, but the, the reality is people like me, and they think he's a bit of a stiff. <laughs> because he's an engineer type. You know, he, you know, he doesn't know how to get the pencils out of his pocket, but I, you know, I love him anyway. So we get into these arguments, and as soon as I get a little agitated, he's like a deer in the headlights of a car. And, you know, it just makes things worse. So I said, and we'll call it Jack and Joan. I said, Joan, this is what you're going to say to Jack next time. And this is what I told her to do. When, when it's escalating, he's going to look like the deer in the headlights of a car. You know, if he says something, it's wrong. If he says nothing, it's wrong. You've been there, Doug. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and so, Joan, I said, you're going to say this to Jack. You're going to look him in the eye and you're going to say, I get a way out of this better than the usual way. Now, he's fine. He's done. He thinks, oh, this is great. Argument's over. Let's go out. We'll go have wine. We'll have sex later. Good night. 
But the point is, so he's he's already, he's already fine that you you stopped the runaway train. But I said, what you're going to say to Jack is, Jack, I want you to repeat after me, Joan. When we get into an argument and you get all emotional, and if I say something, it's wrong, and if I say nothing, it's wrong. I feel like running full speed and smashing my head into the wall because you make me freaking crazy. So can you stop going? Stop going wacko when these things happen. So Jack, could you say that to me? And, you know, he's a little bit constipated emotionally. Well, when, <laughs> when, well, Joan, you do so. And I said, Joan, you're in charge of it. Go to him. No, you can do better than that, Jack. Well, Joan, when you do such and such. So three days later, she calls me. Uh, God's honor. She calls me. And I said, what happened? She said, well, we had the argument. And I did what you said. I said, what happened? She says, I have good news and bad news. Oh, boy. What's the good news? She said, the good news is, you're right, he was constipated, he couldn't get into it, but because I wasn't defensive and, and I felt like I was in charge of this thing, I kept goading him, come on, come on, you can do better than that. And she said, after about four minutes, I uncorked something, and he started venting at me. I mean, he had this high colonic, he was bringing up his childhood, <laughs> I mean, it was unbelievable, and he kept going for seven minutes, and uh, and that's the good news. You could say, I, I just released got everything off his chest. I said, what's the bad news? And she said, after he did it, he came over and hugged me and said, you're my best friend. I love you. And he's like this puppy dog who wants to hug me all the time. He's creeping me out. I want him to go back to being the engineer. He's really invading my space. Everything changed. <laughs> everything changed. I said, don't worry, don't worry. You'll slip back, but at least you have a tool, you know, so it doesn't go you know, off the rails. But, but can you see how it worked, this mediated catharsis? That's super clever. I'm going uh, I'm, I'm to have to use it, and then I'll, I'll have to report back to you, let you know how I make out. I guess this will be a good point for us to transition a little bit talking about crazy people, right? I think we're all a bit crazy ourselves, and two, we definitely know a handful of crazy people in our lives. So... I just finished the book, Talking to Crazy. What would be a good base for this is to just shed some light on what's the difference between crazy, personality disorders, and then mental illnesses. So that way people have a good understanding of wh where we're coming from as, as, we, as we move okay, forward. Okay, so I took a lot of heat from the psychiatric and psychological professions with the title. They said, you know, we're all dealing with stigma. How can you title a book this? And I said... It's not really about mental illness. It's about people that drive us crazy and how to deal with them. And I picked the title because if you read it, it's really not about mental illness. It's about how to really, you know, calm down and disarm the people. Totally. You know, when they when they're irrational, they drive you crazy. And it's a better title. And look, uh, hey, if I hadn't done that title, you wouldn't have sent me all the hate mail. I got your attention. That's pretty good. That's what a book title's for. Yeah, yeah. I, I, this is an aside. I spoke in Russia uh, on empathy to the Russian Federation, to managers, not not the polit in Moscow last October. It was a big hit. If people look up Moscow, Goulston, YouTube, they did a three-minute highlight reel. But my book, Just Listen, in Russian, the Russian edition is I Hear You Through and Through, which is a much better title. And, and talking to crazy, I kid you not, the Russian edition is how to talk to assholes, and it, <laughs> it has gone viral. It has gone viral. I mean, uh, 
Every time I check in, oh, here's another one quoting me, oh, and how to talk to assholes and such and such. uh, That's funny. In fact, I told the publisher, because it just came out in paperback with a guy named Marshall Goldsmith, a friend of mine, writing the Ford. I said, can we just change the title, How to Talk to Assholes? But, you know, when you're dealing with publishers, oh, no, we have the advanced cover and we'll be talking to crazy. I said, well, you would have sold more books, but, you know, go, (laughs) go figure. But I do make a distinction, and I do talk about real mental illness, because I have, you know, I'm a suicide specialist, and I, I, yeah. I have deep compassion for them. And I talk about that in the final chapter. But these are the people that drive you crazy. And, and I'll give you a little thing that I've learned about people who drive you crazy. One of the things that people who drive us crazy have in common is they all push us into our rage. Yeah. And when someone pushes you into your rage, you, uh, your brain bifurcates and you put a lid on uh, what you're about to say because you want to eviscerate them, Yeah. the next thing. And so what you do instead, they feel that you're off balance and then they go for the jugular. In fact, something I've been trying to do, and, you know, and I'm, I'm not trying to get political here, uh, but I've been, you know, for a year I've been sending stuff to CNN. If you want to disarm Trump, it is so simple. So, so this would work, but again, you know, uh, I mean, I, I hope some reporter would try this, but people are set in their ways because one of the ways that Trump gets to other people is he appalls them hmm. and he so offends them that you want to kill him because you're so offended and you put a lid on wanting to kill him because it's a, it's a very disturbing emotion to really feel violent inside so the way you would deal with people who drive you crazy, like a Trump, is so their modus operandi is to provoke you, get you off balance. And when you're off balance, you can't think clearly. Why? Because they caused your amygdala to hijack you away yeah. from your head. Yeah. So the simple way, if anyone's listening, if you have a Trump in your life, <laughs> and, and the simple way that any reporter, but nobody's used this, and tell me if you think it would work. Uh, Go for it. So if I'm a CNN reporter or MSNBC, and if I was speaking to him, what I would say is, President Trump, you seem really passionate about what you're talking about. Is that true? Oh, yeah, you're passionate. Make America great, blah, 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 blah. I mean, and it's really important to you what you're talking about. Is that true? Yes. Well, I'll make a deal with you. If you can tell me how you came to that point of view everything you else you considered and ruled out and how you came to this conclusion as the way to respond to a situation, I would be happy to go to my fellow reporters and say, I think we got the guy wrong. So if you can, if you can in detail, tell me how, how it was that you came to your, this final thing that you said, if it makes sense, if it, feels right, I'll go to bat for you at CNN. He could never do that. I think he would probably try to avoid it. I think he would try to avoid it. I think controversy is part of his overall strategy, uh, right? No, he would avoid it. He avoid it. I'd, say, I'd say, no, no, no. I'd say, I'm not kidding. I mean, because if you're so passionate and it's so important to you, just tell me how you came to this conclusion and what you considered as alternates and ruled them out and why you ruled them out. And I'm happy to go to bat for you. I'll take a lot of heat from, uh, you know, Jake Tapper and uh, Van Jones and uh, Anderson <laughs> Cooper. I mean, I mean yeah, I'm willing to go in the hot seat. Just tell me how you came to the, your conclusion and what you ruled out and coming to. 
to the point, do you follow, that, that if you're just insistent on that and you're saying, no, I'm on your side, just tell me how you came to your conclusion, you wouldn't be able yeah. to do it. You're empowering them. It goes back to diffusing with empathy again and, and empowering them with what they're already saying, right? So I think that's a tactic that we could all use in our lives, as you said, if we have a Trump in our lives. So has social media made us crazier? So getting back to that, here's where I get on my soapbox. Um, <laughs> I think, and this goes back to why people, more people are killing themselves, is that what's happened is we've become adrenaline junkies. And I believe compassion, tenderness, and patience are almost extinct. They take too long. Yeah. And so what happens is when people are in pain, and we've talked about they don't want solutions. They want to feel less alone. They want to feel felt so that they can get a burst of oxytocin, so their cortisol can go down, so they can come back to reason. But the point is, uh, social media has ramped us up, and we've all become not just adrenaline junkies, but momentum junkies. Yeah. So, so when we're on a roll, we can't stand to be interrupted. I'll share a funny uh, little story. I occasionally contribute to Harvard Business Review, and. One of my blogs is how to know if you talk too much, did very well. <laughs> I could see that. And what I was talking about is a friend of mine named Marty Nemco. He's this brilliant career coach up in uh, San Francisco. He has an NPR uh, career channel, and I suggest people to check him out. And when Just Listen came out, one of the things he told me is he said, you know, Mark, for a guy who wrote a book on listening, you're pretty bad at it. <laughs> and, then he, and then he said, you need to follow the traffic light rule. And I said, what's the traffic light rule? He said, unless someone's asking you to talk, you know, if you're in a radio interview and the person's asking you to talk, that's one thing. But if you're out there meeting people and they didn't ask you to give a lecture on yourself, he said, the traffic light rule is that you have 20 seconds before the green light turns to yellow. And you have another 20 seconds before you're still talking before the yellow light turns to red and you have worn out your welcome. The problem is you're feeling great talking because you're relieving stress and you disconnect any awareness from the fact that the other person thinks you're just boring as hell. <laughs> and he says, he says, what you have to keep in mind is that when you're talking and you're getting stuff off your chest, it feels so good you disconnect from any awareness of whether the other person is even listening. And those 40 seconds feel like five seconds. And so you need to monitor it. I think we can call that the hot potato effect. You got to view yourself like you have a hot potato in your hand and get the conversation back over to the other person as, as quick as possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't do it enough. I need to read Just Listen over again because <laughs> one of my mentors, a fellow named Warren Bennis, he was a big leadership author at USC. And he died a few years ago. But a couple things he would often say is, and they're in uh, Just Listen, he would say, be more interested than interesting and be more fascinated than fascinating. And the point is, it's so tempting to be interesting and fascinating. Unless someone's really asking you, it's so boorish. <laughs> yeah, that's a classic from uh, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. I think that... Mm -hmm. That's a great lesson. It's, it's a great takeaway. I did something super mechanical to help me improve my listening. And 
I don't know if you, I don't know if this is good clinical advice or, or, or whatnot, but when I realized that I was listening poorly was I started tracking how well I listened to people. So I literally made a sheet that I called my listening sheet. And at the end of each day, I had some like standard scoring system, one through three. And I, one, if I did good, two, if I was okay, three, if I was bad. And then I would just, in a very loose fashion, rate how well I listened that day in particular conversations. And I don't know if it actually, it actually worked, except for the fact that it made me hyper aware of the fact that I was either listening to the person speaking or wasn't listening to the other person speak. Have you ever used any kind of tracking in clinical practice? Oh, I, I love what you said, and I, I hope you'll email it to me. Uh, uh, something that I use, especially for people who want to be more impactful and successful in business, and I'll have to do it consciously because, it, again, it's so seductive and intoxicating you know, to be impressive, and it totally comes from insecurity, we know. If you're trying to be impressive, it's because down deep you don't feel you're very impressive at all. But that's a whole other uh, podcast. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that I suggest people do whenever they've met someone or when they've met a presentation is to ask themselves, if I, if I took an avatar from the room, if I'm doing a presentation, or the person I'm speaking to, if I was them on a scale of 1 to 10 – how would they rate me in understanding where they're coming from and where they're most wanting to go in life? And don't beat up on yourself. You say to yourself, well, how can I improve that the next time? But that's basically what people are looking for is, do you get where I'm coming from and where I'm trying to go? I feel like when you're, when you're ranking things, it, it gives you a point of relativity, right? It gives you a way to really start thinking critically about compared to other conversations that you may have had or things that you've done. And when you don't have a basis for comparison, it comes extremely, extremely hard to understand whether you're improving or not, you know? So I totally understand. And I love any technique or strategy that has to do with, or questioning where it's on a scale of one to 10, how does this apply? Because otherwise it's too binary and you can't yeah. really, you can't really get m a lot of information from it. So I feel like we're in this world where it's always, I'll do this if you do that, or I'm keeping track of this, and if you don't do this for me, then I'm not going to do that for you. That's definitely, in my eyes, a type of crazy. How do you approach that kind of crazy? Boy, this is another soapbox for me. So my philosophy of life, now you have to realize, um, you, know, you know, sort of at the end of my career, I, I mentor 30 people, so it keeps me relevant. And when I'm mentoring, you know, I focus on them, focus on helping them distill their future and helping them land in it any way I can, you know, by introductions. I mean, that it keeps me relevant because it's painful to be irrelevant. And, and I'm not someone who's going to go play tennis and golf and drool. Um, I might drool, <laughs> I, I might drool, but I'm not going to do the tennis or golf. That's at night when you're sleeping. There you go. There you go. Uh, so my philosophy is I give to everyone, and I try to be aware of the givers, the takers, and the receivers. So the givers are people who cannot stand generosity without reciprocating. They're the ones, without your asking them, they say, you know, if anything comes of this, you're going to participate. You know, let's figure out what's in it for you. So, so they spontaneously yeah. do that. The takers, 
the way you can tell them is if you feel it in your gut, you might say, oh, that reminds me of something you can do for me. And then, you know, if they have some, and, and, and pick something that matches what they're asking. And then if they make an excuse, <laughs> one of my favorite approaches that if I'm dealing with a taker, I'll say, oh, that reminds me of something you could do for me. And they say, no, I, I'm not going to be able to do that. Well, well, that reminds me of this. And if I'm just, and I'm just doing it, not even because I want them to do it, it's just because, you know, okay, they're a taker, here we go. And one of the things I say to them, because I can be a little passive aggressive, I say, I say, do you know what an Indian giver is? And they say, what's that? An Indian giver is someone who gives and then, and then, and then takes it back. And I said, I don't like Indian givers, and I just became one. And they said, what? Everything I said I was gonna do for you, it's gone. It's not gonna happen, ever. He said, well, how can you say that? Because I gave you every opportunity to reciprocate and you failed all of them. And so whatever I said I was going to do for you, it's done. I'm not, I mean, it's done. I'm not doing it. Goodbye. Goodbye. Yeah. So that, that's a little of my getting even. But the, the interesting people are the belly of the bell-shaped curve, which are the receivers. And those are the people that you can do things for. And they don't naturally – look, everybody's trying to survive. So they don't naturally say, what can I do for you? Uh, because they're just so anxious, you know, they're trying to get their numbers, whatever they're trying to do. But they're the kind of people that if you ask them, oh, by the way, that reminds me of something you can do for, for me, they will do it with zero enthusiasm. So they'll go back to wherever they're going, and, and you may have to remind them, and they will then delegate it to, you know, someone in their office. But they have no interest in actually making it successful. And yeah. so now you can't be that judgmental of them because they're just trying to survive. The takers to me are, you know, crummy people. And, but at this stage of my life, you know, I'll give to everyone except the takers. I'll give to the receivers and the givers. But at this point in my life, I, you know, I'm only giving to givers when I'm finding out as a, I'm just, a, all the people that I mentor are givers. And one of these days I'm going to create a summit because when they meet each other, they're going to say, where have you been all my life? They're all going to love each other. Yeah. I feel like it's very easy to spot the, the takers. And sometimes it's easy to fall into the trap of, wow, the world is full of takers. And I, I think that would be uh, extremely enlightening to see a bunch of like-minded people together in that manner giving. This has been a great conversation. I have so many things that I'd be, you know, I, I can ask you. But all good things must come to an end. So I want to take what we're going to, I'm going to give you one question and then I'm going to ask you three final questions. So the question is, do you have a final ask for the audience and or is there a best place for the world to connect with you online? I've just relaunched my website and I'm so proud of it because one of the people I mentor did an amazing job. And if people want to find that person, it's really remarkable. That's markgoulston.com. M-A-R-K-G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N.com. And if you go there and just give me your email, uh, you'll get a, a chapter from Just Listen, which is the introductory chapter, which has a something called the persuasion cycle. So that's that's probably one of the best ways to reach me. A, another, a personal thing is I, I'm also at Twitter, at Mark Goulston. And I have a, I'm on a personal mission to prevent suicide. So I actually have a tweet up at Twitter that's always there, and it's it's basically, you know, have you ever known anyone or known of someone who committed suicide? I know it's supposed to be died by suicide. 
It has 850 comments and 1.2 million impressions. So I've created a compassionate community, and I just keep encouraging people, reach out to the people, because people are just listening. All the people they've known have killed themselves. People are also tweeting how they've made attempts. And so I have a mission to prevent suicide. So I don't see people individually. I've retired as a doctor, but I found a way to make empathy scalable. So I'm excited about that because it used to it used to be just me, but now I've figured out how to scale empathy and ways in which most people can get through to highly depressed and suicidal people and get them to open up. So I'm really thrilled about that. So so those are a couple of things. That's amazing. That's truly, truly amazing. So with that being said, we just have three final questions. You ready? I'm ready. What's one quote or motto that you live your life by? My favorite quote, which pushed away uh, Wilfred Beyond's thing about memory and desire, and it comes from a woman named Dr. Shawnee Duperon from the Forgiveness Project, which was nominated for a Nobel Prize. And it's forgiveness means accepting the apology you will never receive. Wow. That's right. You think about that. It so frees you. Yeah, that's awesome. So what's one book that's impacted the way you think? Not your favorite book, just one book that's impact, or it could be your favorite book, but one book that's impacted the way that you think. I am a big fan of Marshall Goldsmith's who's a friend, he wrote The Forge, the new edition of Talking to Crazy. But he wrote a book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. What I love about it, it is a great, easy read. But basically what it talks about is you need to be competent to get to a certain level of success and respect in your life. But after you reach that, you get results through other people. And if you offend other people, they're not going to want to succeed for you. If you haven't heard of it, I think it's a, it's a great and easy read. That's awesome. I love it. Uh, anything that inspires growth or just continuous learning, I'm a big advocate for. And finally, what's one thing that you want to tell the world, it's not what it seems? Well, here's a takeaway. If you look into people's eyes, and this is, this is part of what I'm trying to teach the world how to save lives. If you look into people's eyes and you think they might be depressed, Get them to open up, you know, you seem down, what's that about? And listen to them. And then I have something called the six words, and I'm trying to get this through to suicide hotlines. And the six words are, you look into their eyes, and you say, I have six words for you. And they're going to go, what? And you can do this over the telephone, the suicide hotline. And the six words are hurt, fear, anger, shame, loneliness, and tired. Which of those do you feel? Talk to me. And it's, it, they're always there. They're screaming out at you. Anyone who's under stress is feeling either hurt, fear, anger, shame, lonely, or tired. And as they begin to talk and you just listen into their eyes with no other agenda than alleviating it, I'm telling you, you'll actually start to, they'll tear up, but you'll actually... And you're not making them cry, you're giving them relief. And you will leave those conversations feeling, that's the best that I can be in the world. That's amazing. That's awesome. I absolutely love it. I couldn't think of a better way to finish up our conversation. 
thank you again for agreeing, coming on, having this conversation. I hope everybody goes out, supports you, supports the Twitter request to help provide awareness around suicide, support you by any way they can, but buying the books, just listen, talking to crazy. There are so many strategies, so many techniques, both go into much greater detail and, and very specific examples. I can't recommend them enough. Mark Olson, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a great conversation. Well, thank you for having me, and uh, I look forward to staying in touch with you. Absolutely. Thank you. Hey, you. Yeah, I'm talking to you. Do you like good books? I like good books. How would you like to have three new book recommendations in your inbox every single month? Well, if that even sounds the slightest bit appealing to you, then head over to my website, douglasvigliotti.com, and click the big red obnoxious bar at the top that says, click here to join my reading list. Each month, I send out one email that reviews three books that I enjoyed, and I just talk about the big themes and concepts in each book. I tell a little bit about what I liked about each book and what I was left taking away from each book. And just one more thing. If you like today's episode, please, please don't forget to hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode and leave a review. You'd be helping me out immensely.